crypto, specifically Bitcoin. We're not given any investment advice here. Instead, we want to look at the value of Bitcoin in a different way. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka, sponsored by the Zero Aggression Project, zeroaggressionproject.org. I'm your host, Bill Protzman, here on the AHO Radio Network. For clarity, neither Jim nor I are investment advisors, and the views we share here are our own. We honor your personal choices and recognize that markets, especially in cryptocurrencies, are highly volatile, and any investment decisions you make about them are your own. So, Jim, in the context of the last few years, what's your take on the real power of Bitcoin today? You know, I I think it's uh, going to go up. I don't think that that's the most important thing about it, though. I think what I want to discuss today is what I is what I think the value or purpose of Bitcoin is. But there's been a lot of talk lately about how much it's gone down. It's gone down so much. It had a peak uh, last year that had it topping uh, sixty thousand uh, dollars per coin, and it's lately it's been hovering uh, just under twenty thousand a coin. And so I just would remind people that right before the pandemic. Bitcoin, so this is 2020. This is February, March, 2020. Bitcoin was around $4,000. And on a percentage-wise basis, Bitcoin has had even bigger valleys than the present one it's in right now. And so I think the long-term outlook is that Bitcoin's going to go up. And we'll cover some of the reasons why, hopefully, here while we talk today. You know, I have no trouble with, you know, successful investing. That's really great. But I suspect you've got something else up your sleeve about this. Give us some history and then we'll dive into the grace points when we get close to the end. Well, I think that a lot of people have thought that uh, Bitcoin was an inflation hedge, like gold, right? So we, we're in uh, peak inflation. It started last year. And right around the same time, Bitcoin starts going down. And people are like scratching their heads and they're trying to figure out why is this happening? Um, there's just a couple of things that can be said about that. First, gold hasn't been gold for a long time. True. Somewhere yeah. somewhere during the stagflation era in the in the late 1970s, even though it was starting to shoot up pretty high or whatever in the early 80s, it seemed like it broke at a certain point there. I'm no expert on this stuff. I wish my uh, uh, late mentor, Harry Brown, was here. He could talk, we could talk quite a bit about what gold has done and hasn't done. But it it didn't go to the moon like everybody thought it would in terms of its its relationship to the dollar. Um, and so it kind of a, we, we decoupled gold from the dollar, the gold standard. Well, that may have actually had something to do with it. Um, again, my expertise is kind of limited uh, on that subject, but it is obvious that it is not. When we've had periods of inflation or instability, it has not gone up as much as as many of its biggest fans have suggested it would. Um, so, you know, I follow silver much more closely because I, I'm, you know, we bought some silver in during the previous decade and the one before uh, after the financial crisis. I started buying silver. And uh, I, I haven't done so in, in, in a little while because both times I managed to buy at a, at a fairly high point. And I had a, a, an acquaintance who will probably comment on this when he sees it on Facebook, uh, who does not like Bitcoin at all, uh, is a big fan of gold and silver and has been advocating the purchase thereof. And he suggested back in April that in May, uh, uh, silver was going to uh, top $30. It was going to break that level. Well, it, it, and at that time, he had seen it going up to 26, and that was that was a new peak. It had climbed a look, quite a bit. It looked like something was about to happen, and he was doing this timing thing. Where he's like, this is the time to buy. It's going to keep going up. Well, if you had done that, there wouldn't have been a day since he said that that was anywhere near that. It's been uh, 21, and then for a while it was 20, and recently, as recently as yesterday, it was down to 19 and change. 
So that's been the pattern where it's been the whole time. And gold kind of moves a little better, you know, has a little bit better peaks than, than silver. But my point is gold isn't necessarily been gold. And it is pretty obvious now that um, Bitcoin is not the new gold. It's not an inflation hedge. That's not its purpose. Um, and, and that's okay. Uh, it's, 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 it's going to protect you. It could protect you from inflation if we looked at it correctly, but it's not going to like go up because inflation has gone up. Right. Right. Which is an interesting concept for people to sort of put your minds around. So what is the real then purpose that you see for Bitcoin? Uh, it's, it's a, it's a storehouse of savings. Okay. I, I, and it's, I and it's built on that. a system <laughs> and it's a, and it's a, and it's a system that uh, it's a banking system that replaces uh, government actors, regulated government actors as trust agents. It's built on something called blockchain. So those are its two primary purposes. The Bitcoin itself is built on blockchain. So blockchain has one value. And then Bitcoin, I would suggest, if you're just asking me about Bitcoin, it's a storehouse for value. So I know you wanted to say something here about China as sort of an, a way of ex showing by example what you're talking about. Do you want to bring that in? Yeah. So people will ask, why is it down? Like, why is it taking this? So if it, if last summer it gets up into the, into the mid sixties and now it's down to 20, what is, what accounts for that dive? And I would say that it's, it's downhill. There's, there's, there's several factors that are maybe going on right now. Uh, first, there's been active Chinese suppression of this. And China is a very, very large market. There's a couple other governments that are opposed to it too, but China is a major, major international player. And um, we're, it's very important. The, 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 their suppression has sent a signal, and, and there are people who are interpreting this signal to mean that Bitcoin can never flourish. Uh, second, this is the thing I think matters the most. Uh, speculators have gotten in. Um, and their goal has their goal has really been twofold. They 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 well, I'm sorry, the goal should be, excuse me, twofold. And that is that your Bitcoin should be a store of savings and perhaps an alternative currency. Those are the two things that you should be thinking of it as as. If you got in saying, well, you know, look at where it's going, you know, it's like there, there used to be this thing called tulip mania, right? This idea that something, you know, some inanimate object, you know, beanie babies, whatever it is, there's always been something along the way that there was some mania where it was really taking off and like, oh, I better get on this. And, you know, I'm going to make all this money if I do this, you know, there's these Bitcoin, you know, millionaires and now billionaires even, you know, maybe I should get in on the act for this thing too, or maybe I should have gotten in sooner. Well, the get in sooner parts over, it's never going to go back to that. Um, that opportunity is passed. So at this point, it's a store of savings and it's an alternative currency. And um, you get what happens, though, is that when you get these speculative surges of confidence and things go down a little bit, let me start off with it. They're start off. They really are high. Um, people start spending the money. They start getting off the train. Other new people yeah. start getting on it. And then they immediately they bought in too high. They get scared and panicked and start to drop out. And so. You, I think we've had a situation that's kind of a modification of Gresham's law, whereby a speculative Bitcoin buyers uh, drive out stability. They, they take it away. And, and uh, frankly, those of us uh, who are, have been bought Bitcoin want to see those speculators go long term. This is not healthy for it to be constantly going up and down like this. We would prefer more stability. Uh, in this area, more like a As, real currency, right? Like a, exactly like a dollar yen. Yep. Yeah. So a friend of mine, Jason Rink, said out loud uh, a couple of months back. He said, if, you know, this was back when Bitcoin was like thirty-eight or forty. 
He said, if you're not prepared for Bitcoin 10,000, get out now. And then he sent that same thing when Bitcoin was at 22 or 23. He said, if you're not prepared for Bitcoin 10,000, I still think you should get out now. If you'd have taken his advice at the time, you'd have sold before it went down. And right now, if you're bothered by the price of it, which I'm not, you would be like, yeah, you know, I did okay. I got something out of it. So, uh, and, and this, by the way, this is a, this is a thing that happens. So I turn on a UFC fight. I sit and watch the fight and I see that there's, there's cryptocurrency people. I turn on the television. I see Tom Brady is advertising the cryptocurrency product. I start seeing cryptocurrency everywhere. There's all kinds of upstart competitors getting into the race. And obviously they were going to have some kind of impact on this too. And there was a little bit of a pump and dump going on with some of these things as well. Uh, lowering confidence. Everybody's looking for the next new crypto that's going to be the speculative take you to the moon thing. And after a lot of that kind of volatility, and of course, people getting into those things, you saw some Bitcoin uh, decrease too, because people weren't necessarily in Bitcoin for the right reason. But there's this funny uh, story, I don't know whether it's true or not, that Joe Kennedy uh, in the 1920s, right before the Great Depression, got into a cab. And the cab driver told him that he was in the stock market now too. And he went, Time to sell. And he allegedly sold right before the crash, like a few months before. And of course, was not hurt in a lot of the way that a lot of his wealthy friends were. He kept his money and was able to thrive into the 30s and take advantage of new opportunities because the market went way down and he was able to buy low. And right now, you are in the position, you may be very close to the position, I don't know what the bottom of this is going to be, where you can come in and buy low. And I would expect over time that, and I and when I say over time, I mean really the long term, the same way you might think of a savings account, or even more so an IRA or a 401k, you will have preserved currency against, uh, your, I'm sorry, your, your wealth, your actual wealth, as opposed to having it stuck in, in fiat-based currency, which is getting printed and printed and printed and printed and is going down and down and down and down. Oh my gosh. We've got to go there because, you know, inflation. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I don't want people to be confused about what I'm saying here. So I'm, I, I want to be clear that, you know, a lot of people say, well, you buy something that you're trying to buy something that's like an inflation hedge or you want to get up against inflation. It's going to go up as inflation goes up. I am suggesting Bitcoin doesn't do that. What I'm suggesting that and is that in the long term, not the short term, in the long term, Bitcoin will preserve wealth effectively and you will come out ahead in the long run as opposed to staying in dollar denominated assets. So and, rather than looking at Bitcoin as a, well, it, I mean, it is an investment. Rather than looking at Bitcoin as a tradable process, well, we, we should be thinking about it more like a mutual fund. We put the money in regularly and just let it accumulate and let it accumulate and, and leave it alone. Yeah. So everybody should have a savings plan, right? Uh, some right. some amount of money, like you, you, you could put some money into... Uh, stocks, you can put it in a savings account, you can put it into bonds, you can put it in whatever, but you take some portion of the income that you have coming in and you invest it long-term for tomorrow. And I'm not suggesting that you put all of it in Bitcoin. That's not my point. My point is that Bitcoin should probably be part of your long-term planning uh, in terms of you know having some allocation of funding that you are perpetually buying more and more Bitcoin. And that now is probably a better time to be buying that Bitcoin because you are, uh, because the price is so low and you have the opportunity to, to get in at a decent level. It may go down a little bit further. I wouldn't be actually be surprised if it did. I'm, I'm in agreement with Jason who, you know, the, if you're not prepared for Bitcoin 10,000, get out. And, and if anybody's listening right now and you're really threatened and you've been trying to figure out what should I do? Should I sell? 
if you're really uncomfortable now, get out. But I'm suggesting that in the long run, I think it's going to go up higher than its previous records. Okay, so I'm curious about the relationship between the stock market and Bitcoin in terms of like prices. But more than that, um, how Bitcoin sort of fits into the entire economic or investing picture, whether that's real estate or money under the mattress or Bitcoin. So people start to wonder, Bill, where money goes during inflation. It's got to go somewhere. And, you know, there's a, there's the gold and silver theory that we've been spending some time talking about, you know, hard assets. Uh, it goes to real estate in many cases. And then some people say it goes with the stock market. If you watch the flow of Bitcoins going you know, up, it was going up a lot while the stock market was going up. And if you watch it now uh, going down, it's been going down. And the stock market hasn't gone down as much, but the stock market has taken quite a plummet this year. Um, so you can kind of, it's almost like you could probably overlay those two things and, and arrive at the same juncture. So if the stock market's up, uh, the, the, the Bitcoin's probably up. People are feeling maybe more confident. They go out and buy Bitcoin and vice versa, uh, at least up to this point. You know, these things could divorce themselves at any point. It seems inverted to the real estate market. The real estate market's been going up, 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 right, yeah, in the midst of all this. So that seems to be one place where the money's going. But, uh, you know, I've been uh, talking with my uh, business partner, Perry Willis, and and he he helped me arrive at, at the idea that people, when inflation hits, savings always deplete and when and and bitcoin is a form of savings yes so and the and there's a fundamental reason for this so if prices are going up and you're not making much money at the bank it becomes kind of silly to leave that money in the bank you want to go buy the objects that you've been waiting for and the pressure increases over time because you see the prices going up and you're like well my savings ability is not keeping up with the ability of that thing to go up in in price right so if you are putting aside $50 a week and the price of the refrigerator goes up $100 and you needed a refrigerator, you know, you're, you're losing ground, right? Why wait becomes the thing. And people start to buy, even at the higher price, because they start anticipating that price is going to keep going up and they don't know when the end is going to be in sight. This and so like they deplete the, uh, the auto industry right now. Yes, they deplete. Exactly. There was a whole rush and demand to get in there and people keep getting in because they keep thinking the price is going to go up or they're not going to get their car. You know, right now people are thinking, I know this because this is happening to us right now. We have not yet purchased the car because it's months down the road, but we're having this conversation. Maybe we've got to do it because we know it's going to be months down the road before it gets in. And so these pressures, this inflation pressure causes people to start to empty their savings out. And Bitcoin at the end of the day should and is a form of savings. And so they get out, right? Especially when they start seeing the price of Bitcoin going down and they start as it goes down faster and faster and prices outside are going up higher and higher. They say, well, I'm, you know, it's time to get out. So I think this is actually, uh, if you want to try to understand what the future of Bitcoin is, I think you have to track uh, what people's, whether people are, are really tuned into consumption right now whether they think this inflation thing isn't going to last. Now, inflation is usually followed by recession. And then purchasing stops. Buying gets flat. What's going to happen at that moment for the people who are able to save? Might Bitcoin start to come back at that point? I think it does. There's a there's an implication here. And I know there's going to be lots of people who hate on us for this, but there's a at least some significant reason why all of the stimulus money 
which is close to what five trillion dollars printed in the United States over the last two years, a couple of years, yeah, um, is having an effect on our prices right now. And I want to try, if we can, not being economists here, but try if we can to sort of marry that fact with the its effect on Bitcoin, and more importantly, what we can do if we choose to own Bitcoin to somehow intervene with that. So I think uh, Bitcoin fundamentally makes us it helps us declare independence from the state. Uh, the government uses money in a lot of ways to control very various aspects of daily life. And they they have this ability, this five trillion was largely printed or created out of thin air, much the same way that a counterfeiter would work. Uh, they just pump new money into the economy. There's a mechanism for doing it. It's all very official and everything. But at the end of the day, it left everybody with the impression that there was a lot more wealth out there and new wealth wasn't created, just more money was. And yeah. so it devalues uh, the currency. And if we think of inflation, I think this is the accurate way to think of it. And I only hear one member of Congress actually repeat this regularly. And it's Tom Massey from Kentucky. Inflation's a tax. I don't think, I think there's very few politicians that understand this. I mean, you know, it's 435 reps, 100 senators, well, the president of the United States, we don't know what he understands. But I don't think, and the president's statements don't belie the fact that he understands what I'm about to say. They don't understand that inflation is a tax. Um, they, you know, a lot of them have this tendency to attribute it to the greed of people who produce, who sell. And there, you can falsify this in an instant by asking them if the, when the price comes back down. So let's go to gasoline. Cause that's been the thing that's been on people's minds here in July of, and June of, uh, 2022. When the gas price goes down as it has been during the last week here in July, if it's greed, how did that happen? Like if, if they could just turn up the lever and start charging more, why would they turn the lever and start charging less? That doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, so if you think of the inflation as a form of taxation, I think this puts you in a much better stead. So Bitcoin is inherently more moral because it's not an inflationary device. Okay. So, so all the fluctuation in price has more to do with the dollars than it does with the Bitcoins. Time out, because this is a concept that's brand new to me and probably for at least some of our listeners Bitcoin is inherently more moral. Can you help me understand what that means to you? Yes. Okay. So for the sake of example, and strictly for the sake of example, I am not making a comparison or analogy of these things as being equal things. Um, let's consider Bitcoin gold and let's consider um, the dollars in your pocket to be paper, Right. And you have a printer in your office. I'm sure you do. Most Americans do. And if every time you were able to print a sheet of paper, you had another dollar, right? Uh, what would your temptation be, Bill? What would you do? Got to well, go buy something. Motivated by greed here. So I would just print as much as I need. Okay. Every human being would. And governments are not as moral as human beings. They're like, you know, angry mobsters, right? So they print many of them, five trillion of them. And they flood the economy with them. They use it to buy goods and services when the price is at A. The price goes up to B. 
as inflation takes place and we are buying things. So there's a there's a front end of the economy where the money's created. The counterfeiter gets the most benefit. They have the most purchasing power with that new dollar. The economy starts to adjust to the fact that these new dollars are coming in and we get inflation so so that the later consumers are paying more for their goods and services. That's how that's that's the natural thing. Now, gold, you have to go dig. You have to go dig up. You got to go find it. You have to do something to generate it. And that generation, the investment in that generation, that production of something is what leads to its, uh, leads to its value. In addition, it has some scarcity. So Bitcoin is limited as to how many coins are going to be created. I believe the number is uh, 21 million is the limit. They're not there yet, but they are generated through a, process, a mining process where they have to expend some energy and solve puzzles. And by doing this, it means nobody can sit and print off new Bitcoins. There is a process that is predictable uh, for how they're going to come back online that requires them to be mined. So investment had to be expended to make it happen. Money was put into that to, to, to make it happen. And then the uh, at some point, it's going to be, and this is, by the way, the, the reason I'm most hopeful for its long-term uh, value increase in value there will be 21 million of them total and not even 21 million because frankly, a lot of people got Bitcoin in the early days and lost them or have lost them along the way. So there's going to be even fewer of them in circulation than 21 million. And that will be the absolute limit as to how many of them there are. And so the individual units of them, which are at their various lowest level called Satoshis, but it's, you know, tens and hundreds and thousands of Bitcoin uh, will become increasingly more and more valuable provided that they are stable enough that they become exchangeable as currency. And I think I hear where you're going with this is that the morality, that is the, the investment of effort to produce Bitcoin is, uh, makes it a, a more, no, I'm going to use the word, a more noble form of exchange than one which can be manipulated by the producers of the, of the dollar paper dollars, right? Yes. Yes, and currencies all across the planet. And yeah, and any currency that is not like tied to a gold standard anymore, which I don't know if there are any, but um, that was that was our situation prior to whatever in the 70s, 72, when did we decouple? 71. Situ- 71. When, in 71, so we had that moral equivalency of the dollar to gold. I'm using that word in a pretty fungible way, but yeah. you, you get what I'm saying, right? So I am I understanding that correctly? And then now um, we don't have essentially a moral currency using the same meaning of the word um, aside from Bitcoin. Right. Okay. So now uh, we're going down an interesting trail. Mm -hmm. What does government do with all this money that they print and create? Well, exactly. They they spend it as fast as they can so that the rest of us can use it. Right. (laughs) Unfortunately, by buying like, you know, mega goods and services around the world. Yeah, so they use it to get what they want or to social engineer the outcomes they want or to buy the military hardware and produce the wars that they want. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's what I'm going to tell you. They're not running out. They're not trying to you know float Bitcoin so that they can buy more tanks. They're trying to create more dollars so that they can buy those tanks virtually for free, right? They go into the into the office and they print off as many sheets of paper as they need to to buy the tank, right? So it's free to them practically. And then they... Uh, they stick you with the with the bill of inflation to pay for that tank. Okay, so they're not using the money for good purposes, and we shouldn't be surprised that the, it turns out that even their, you know, we say taxation is theft. Well, even their money, their version of money, 
is a form of theft. I was trying to and then that, that theft is used, of, you know, skillfully or something. But I think you hit the nail on the head in a way that's really courageous. So, uh, yeah, kudos. Yeah. So I'm I'm suggesting that if 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 more people were in Bitcoin than say in dollars, and the more and more people that are in Bitcoin as opposed to say dollars, the more that this becomes part of the currency exchange. This disempowers this ability to go buy war equipment. This and it, for everybody, like the more it happens in every country, the more that it has this impact. Okay. So um, now now we're talking because a worldwide peace movement. Who comes to you like Jim and Bill, the Grace Arkey investment team, in scare quotes, we'd say, well, of course, you, if you want peace, you better start investing in Bitcoin because that decouples the government's ability to, for their own private purposes, from our individual ones. Yep. They're addicted to debt and you would basically be making them go cold turkey. Now it won't be cold turkey because it's the great thing about this is it's a, it'll be a gradual slow transition for the most part. And it might've been the case that this rather young technology, which has only been around for, you know, just under 10 years at this point or 11 years. I mean, it's, it's a very short amount of time. This very young technology needs still needs time to grow and we probably want it to grow at a very steady predictable pace as opposed to these wild troughs and 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 peaks are we at a place right now where where the general public for example would be willing to trust blockchain versus central banking well blockchain's already become a business of its own so bitcoin comes with another innovation that people do not talk about as much but it is already being sold and marketed for a variety of other things it is the basis for some of the other coins that have been uh, generated out there uh, it's also the uh, the basis for a new internet uh, that's being proposed right um the, the blockchain technology means that nobody can centrally own the infrastructure on which the system the, the system runs on so there was a point in time where you would, quote unquote, wire money to a friend through Western Union. I remember. Western Union can be regulated by governments. They can monitor the transactions that move through them. Now, Bitcoin's transparent. There is some ability to monitor the keys. And if you know who owns the keys to, to figure out, you know, where who's sending money to whom. OK, it can be monitored, but it can't be stopped. Yes. And. This is an amazing, amazing thing. I, in fact, I really like to get into this a little bit more. I, 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 I think at the end of the day, I have a radical theory to throw out to you that even if right now civilized society, as it were, right, decided that Bitcoin wasn't right for them, there's one area that's going to keep the Bitcoin alive, and this is valuable to you if you're going to buy Bitcoin, and that is the the black market. What is what I would prefer to call the counter economic market. Yes, I know. Because you say black market and it sounds like a bunch of crime dudes, you know, selling drugs. And, and some of them will be right. I mean, let's let's be honest. Some of them will be. OK, so, I mean, I think of, uh, you know, first, let's define our terms a little bit. I think this is something that people should understand. There was a, a, a man who came up and explained that uh, his name is Samuel Konkin. Uh, no longer he's deceased that said that uh, the counter economy was the sum of not all non-aggressive human action that is forbidden by the state. So if the state says you can't sell this thing, now that, there's a lot of things that fall under that banner. Like there's things you can't sell without a license. Well, we'll discard the license is now a black market thing for you to sell it. So let's say you're doing haircuts from your home. Got to be licensed in your state. That's an activity that if you're doing that off the grid, you're engaged in the black market, Right. Having a currency that facilitates that or the exchange, right? Technically, 
I mean, we've seen some examples of this. The, the Institute for Justice was even able to sue uh, for uh, children who had lemonade stands, right? Or people who did garage sales or sold maybe a, a, an item. They're doing it in dollars. Those dollar-denominated laws suggest that they have to pay uh, the fee for that. So you, you become kind of a criminal. And Konkin was arguing that, that the counter economy would include the free market, the black market, the underground economy, you know, any act of, of civil and social disobedience, uh, all acts of forbidden association, anything else the state at any place in time chooses to prohibit, control, license, regulate, tax, tariff, whatever, uh, this would they would have a, an ability to go in what he called a red market in some cases, where they would do something on purpose, maybe. They would go into a business that they could have where they chose not to be licensed. It's a legitimate business, one that everybody agrees is moral and necessarily, like the example I just mentioned of getting a haircut, but they would say, do it without a license. And this gives us a basis for Bitcoin as a currency here. Any one of those transactions. So I'm clear, so that I'm clear on this. If I'm a stylist, I have somebody come to my home, I give them the haircut, they pay me in Bitcoin. No problem. Because the transaction did not take place in a state-regulated currency, I'm golden. I'm good to go. Nobody can come back to me and say, Bill, and you know, you broke the law. Because, in fact, I didn't. So they could at some point, and in some governments like China, they might find a way to penalize you if you even have possession of Bitcoins. Like, you're not allowed to have them, Okay. And that's the only way that they could stamp this out. We have to have a conversation about why U.S. and China won't do that. But I, I don't want to leave this other why China did what they did and U.S. won't. But I don't want to leave this point. Yes. I this want people to understand. Point. This is important. That, that, that you can that Bitcoin is a barter. It's the exchange of one item for another. Right. And so if you give Bitcoin to somebody for a service that they provided, you have engaged in an act of barter. OK, that's the current status of the law here. You don't actually pay for the Bitcoin until you cash it out. I'm speaking to you as somebody who did cash their Bitcoin out and used it to make a rather uh, last year when it was at a high level. I didn't cash all of it out. I kept most of it, but I cashed a little bit out uh, to make a major purchase, a very significant investment for for our family. And I paid the tax on it this year. I mean, I, I had a large tax bill to pay. I paid a capital gains tax for turning it into cash. So I'm not saying you can escape, you know, get back into the government's money. You have to pay the tax on that. Okay. But if you exchange it for a service, the, the person who's now received it is now the holder who has to figure out how they're going to pay the tax when they go to cash it out. So you have the ability to exchange there. But I, I, I want to go further because there's a privacy thing, right? That there, the, the ability to track that haircut is a lot more difficult for the government than it is to track your bank account. They're getting good at it, but it's still very, very difficult for them to do that. And what it means is that there will always be an opportunity for there to be a black market or a red market. And that this is a good thing for us overall. So let's just be clear. I don't want anybody to misunderstand or think that I'm sh shadowing something. Yes, this will make criminals possible. This will give them a tool they can use. There's no two ways about it. There's extortion schemes that are run off of Bitcoin. Okay. But the fact that there are extortion schemes run off of Bitcoin is part of what makes maintains its value for those of you who own it. Okay. Second, there's going to be refugees who need oh, to suddenly leave their country. So if you're if you're in Afghanistan and you have to get out, Ukraine, put, Poland, yeah, put it all in Bitcoin and leave, right? Because you're going to get to wherever you're going and you'll have access to that wealth. Yeah, try carrying all your gold. Yeah. Try carrying the same equivalent in gold. 
right? Any, any border crossing, you're, it's done. It's done. You're finished. You're not getting it out. Yeah. If you've seen the sad pictures of, of Jews who, you know, are trying to take all of their stuff to the ghetto at the early stages, right? It, it, this is, this is, and this is, this happens time and again, this, this, this is a theme that occurs, you know, every year or two, we see people migrating from one place to the other, not by choice, taking anything that they can carry. Well, if you, if your money, you don't have to carry it. Now, let me say two things. You could maybe put it on a thumb drive, right? Or some kind of device, there's certain devices now that people can use to carry it on or <laughs> like your phone or yeah. you can conceivably uh, measure. I think it's called a hash string. You can you can memorize it. And then there's a 12 word key that goes with it. And if you have that memorized, it could be in your head. You could carry it right across. You wouldn't even have to carry the thumb drive. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's many people that can do that, but it is conceivable. There's no way to hide your gold inside your body, or at least enough of it to be able to get it across the line and, and not have to worry about it. So this empowers those people. And then let's go to the places where there is real repression. There is serious repression and the ability to produce and get things done. There are people right now that are using the blockchain technology, going around banking systems to send money back to their family in Venezuela, which is starving at the moment. This, this is a communist or a Marxist state that has the sits on a huge, huge, huge oil reserve. They should be distributing money back to their own citizens. They have hyperinflation. They have productivity breakdowns. They don't have things on their shelves, especially after lockdown. Family members have fled the country, and they're now able to use the blockchain system, which is a, basically a replacement for the banking system, to get resources to their family in Venezuela. They can take dollars and send them down there and the people will take the Bitcoin because they know that the, they represent a dollar that they can go back and buy elsewhere. This is another basis for the value uh, of, your, of your coin. And finally, we've already talked about it, but almost everybody that is selling to the government, the tank we referenced earlier, but even, you know, uh, pick any item you want that the government's buying right now. Almost <laughs> every, yeah, almost every one of them are crony rent seekers. Right. They, they I, have. No, they, I've heard you say this before. So l let's talk about crony rent seekers just for a minute for the people who don't know what the term's all about. Okay. So cronyism is yes. where you're kind of an insider. You're able yep. to buy access and power, you're able to manipulate the machine for your benefit. Uh, rent seeking or influence or uh, special interest, whatever you want to call it, are the people who then benefit from the excess that's created in that situation. The excess can be created because you get more profit because you're able to sell to, to the government. You get a large, large order where you make it up in quantity perhaps, or you're able to have your competitors knocked out of the game. There's a whole market that you get to exploit that your competitors don't. And people are coming to the government. The number one reason they're coming to the government is the spending. When we started Downsize DC Bill, we noticed that there was a tax and spend party there was a borrow and spend party. And we said, maybe the problem is the spending. And if you think about the problem of inflation, this is on the borrow and spend side. They have to find ways to create and generate revenue. They can't tax all the money they want to steal from us directly. So they come up with this instrument called inflation. And given that everybody's kind of ignorant about what inflation really is, uh, they get uh, greater and greater spending power. So, uh, but the rent seekers are all involved in this and the bankers are at the very front of the line. Amen. Last bailout, was it 2007, 2008? 
Well, I, you know, the whole country was kind of bailed out during this last round. Oh, and, so, and COVID, yeah. I, are you following the airline thing right now? Oh, it's yeah, it's nuts. Okay, I'm about to travel. <laughs> just as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm going to be on a plane tomorrow. And I'm nervous. I got to be on a plane uh, tomorrow. I got to be on a plane a few days later. I got to be yeah. on a plane a few days after that. The odds aren't great. Then I'm going to be able to make my, t- my flights on time, yeah. right? People are getting stranded in airports. It's happening. I just had my cousin over last night for dinner. Tells me a story about getting stranded just at the end of last week. And why is this happening? Well, some of the airlines, United, American, others, um, when they got all, they got special uh, surges and supplements of funds while the uh, lockdowns were going on and throughout the pandemic because their industry was hit so hard. Now, they were still flying people. But instead of just simply scaling back like a normal business normally would, they got a, sub, a surge of funding and their business wasn't doing too terribly bad, Right. And the combination was gave them extra capital that they could use to do buyouts of their most senior employees, send them out to retirement early. And now they're short staffed and everybody's short staffed. Nobody wants to go into a job anymore. So yeah, they've got shortages and delays and they got, they just got called on it because United tried to blame the FAA, the, the air traffic controllers. And their traffic controllers shot back and made sure everybody knew. Over the July 4th holiday, they didn't even have a single person call off a single hour that day, all across the country. And so, yeah, this these are the crony rent seekers at work. And the rest of us? <laughs> well, we we were we allowed ourselves to be sold for pottage. We, you know, they they basically printed or created or spent thirty five thousand dollars a person, and we got two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh man, what a bargain, right? Exactly. And you have seen your your portfolio go down by by more than that. You have seen the cost of your food go up by more than that. So it, you know, yeah, boy, it was a good thing they kept us all at home and and kept us safe. That was they had a really good plan going on there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what plan? <clears throat> but I I say all this to say I think that all of this indicates that Bitcoin persists. The fact that it has a limit, the fact that it has this red or black market or counter economic basis to it means that Bitcoin is going to be there perpetually in the long run. As the as we get closer and closer to limit day and even past that, if you have a long-term view, the value of Bitcoin will keep up, will, will not, you will not lose the value of the dollars you put in it. It will probably over the long-term actually function like a conservative investment. Are we looking for a, a time when World currencies basically begin to disappear in favor of a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, which becomes a universal, universally accepted uh, purchasing agent. Don't get me all hot and bothered, Bill. I, I mean, I'm just getting excited at the thought, right? I mean, it's been, uh, yes, I would like to see that happen. Is it going to happen? Well, no, because uh, you've got governments that are going to compete to bring in their own digital currencies and they're going to say that they have some of the same properties but they will be able to continue counterfeiting perhaps even easier those digital currencies than because the dollar is at this point largely even though we have paper to represent it is largely a digital currency there's not as much paper printed as there are dollars in existence on the on the ledger uh of the federal uh reserve so uh they're going to put some things out to compete with it I, you know, there's one of the things that just raises, I remember we talked earlier about this. I want to make sure we touch this as well. China is a totalitarian state and they have tried, they don't want any competition with their currency and they recognize this as a threat to the state. Well, your United States politicians re- recognize that too. 
So there's been a lot of people that during this downturn, they have come to the conclusion that there's no way the United States government is going to allow Bitcoin to survive, let alone thrive. They're going to do just like China. Their instincts are going to kick into gear. They recognize that there's some handwriting on the wall here, and they're going to try to stop it. Well, I'm going to argue they don't. I'm going to argue that they're going to try to keep the genie in the bottle. They're not going to ban it because the fact that China has already banned it gives them an advantage. That means that all the Bitcoins floating around are going to be American Bitcoins, right? And maybe some European Bitcoins and some African Bitcoins. But the more nations that prohibit it, this becomes a tool even for intelligence agencies to be able to use, even for the investors in those countries to get an advantage that China itself will not be able to enjoy. They will dominate the Bitcoin market and they will be able to use the Bitcoin market to, as an insurgency currency to help foster black markets or undermining markets in states that don't want to cooperate with the United States. So it will become even a tool for diplomatic war. There's no way that they're going to do it. There's enough buy-in right now at the American level. About 25% of the coins in circulation, as I understand, are United States coins. If there's already enough buy-in and enough market cap for it, that the head of the SEC, if I'm not mistaken, just recently said it is a commodity, Bitcoin is, it is not a security, meaning is not one company distributing or selling this property. It's not a stock, right? It is actually a commodity like you, like corn or wheat or gold. And uh, these are regulatory terms, but they also have kind of a basis in reality in that it, it, nobody owns this. But if it's 25% controlled by Americans and we, can, and we want to use this as a tool to start to undermine more tyrannical governments, both our government and its citizens can participate in supporting Russians, for example, who don't want to support Putin right? It becomes a tool to be able to use against other governments that want to choose more totalitarian means. I don't think the U.S. politicians want to abandon that possibility. I don't think they want to abandon something where they could potentially be the leader in the entire world in terms of its output and use and production and value. Gosh, we've got so much more we could play on this because that that single fact, the sort of uh, support of liberty throughout the world, support of freedom throughout the world, is so huge right now. Uh, if we'd been closer to it, I think we might have been able to stop what's happening in Hong Kong. Taiwan, of course, is on the radar. We were talking about Ukraine. Um, you just brought up Russia. There's there's a way to support these movements that's real, that's more than just awareness. You know, it's like, have a rally for Hong Kong. Yeah, well, that'll help. But by actually being able to sustain those freedom movements monetarily, uh, that's huge. Yes, Yes, and this would give you yet another way of being able to do that, that in a way that directly undermines those states that have chosen to reject it. Is this just like a, a little pain in the butt for those kinds of totalitarian, totalitarian states, or is this something that's real enough where we could, in fact, make a difference in a place like China or Taiwan? Uh, the time is going to be the factor and whether or not that's true and whether or not this continues to spread in adoption. So, you know, you said at the beginning that we're not making any investment advice here. Your, your mileage will always vary on the things that we're discussing. I don't claim any you know, special knowledge here. It's possible that, for example, the theories I've thrown out here today are just 100% wrong, right? We cannot. The one thing I can say conclusive here today is that no one knows what the future holds. Yeah. Right? True. And people who try to prognosticate that thing tend to be wrong more often than not. So there's something, I guarantee there's something I've said 
during the course of this cast, it's going to be wrong. I guarantee it. And as people are listening or watching and they are leaving comments, they're probably going to start pointing some of those things out. We all learn something. I'm not a Bitcoin expert. What I'm saying here is that I think Bitcoin has unique moral value to make the world a better place. So let's bring that home just a little bit, because I think that's the ultimate point of this podcast is how Bitcoin allows us to advance what we believe. Um, maybe it's just within our family, Jim, you know, or maybe it's within a, a, a circle of friends. But how do we skillfully do that? I think that's really the, the crux of the of the podcast. I am anti-speculation. And because I want Bitcoin to be a long-term, st stable success, uh, speculation is not is not welcome. Don't do it. And these moments that we're going through right now help clear out the people who were in Bitcoin for the wrong reason. Uh, it keeps it from circulating as a currency. I want it to be in a position that people are actually using and spending it. They're exchanging it. That's where I want it to go, just like they do currently with the dollar. That's what I want. And the more that that can happen, and this is still a very young currency, the better. So instead of speculation, I want to throw out the idea that this is a, a tool that uh, allows us to liberate uh, and leverage against tyranny, especially the blockchain side of that equation. And that secondly, I really believe that stewardship is an important uh, theme. The creator has given us responsibility to, to manage his creation, to enhance his creation, to work his creation, and to do so in a way that serves others. That's what markets are designed to do. You put out a product that's designed to uh, help others, encourage others, entertain others, uh, supply needs that others have. And so I want to encourage people to be very good stewards. And stewardship begins at home. Uh, in 1 Timothy 5.8, I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says, but those who won't care for the relatives, especially those in their own household, they have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. And I say this because there may be people, whether you're a believer or not, but if you are a believer, you, have, you need to recognize that you have a, a, your highest calling is to your own family. Yes. And you have a responsibility to save, to take care of your family. You have a responsibility to leave a legacy, to prepare for bad times, and to assist those who need assistance, most directly those people who are actually in your own family. That's how welfare begins, is in your own family. And if the dollar, if you know that the dollar is conceived on theft, and you know that it's in the process of in its theft, that you are uh, going to be part of the collateral damage in that theft, you should be looking for instruments that will get you off that train, get you out of that target field, because you owe it to your family before you owe it to the community. And people walk around all the time saying, well, how can we make the world a better place? You start at home, you invest your money at home in a way that is going to take care of your family's long-term interests and cover you in times of emergency. Wow, Jim. This is just, this is just ballsy. It's totally courageous, man. And you've gotten my curiosity peak. So I, I think part of this conversation is not to give everybody the answers, but to give everybody... Uh, an open door that you can walk through and find out what it looks like for you on the other side. And that connection, that powerful, motivating emotion, courage, do we need that right now? We need to, we need to take better care of our families. You know? We need to take care, better care of everything. And if crypto is the way to do that, and at the same time, invite liberation from worldwide tyranny, this is such a powerful first step. 
And I got a feeling, hey, this is America. I got a feeling we can do this. And maybe it's more than just America. Maybe it's worldwide. I don't know. But I know here at home it feels good. And it feels like a way forward. And if you're listening to this, thank you, by the way. Thank you for giving us time for this conversation. You know, considering these ideas really deeply is really important to the success of our civilization right now. And it takes heavy lifting, people. It takes heavy lifting to do it. Your courage and your openness means a lot to me and Jim, and more importantly, to our world. I want to just say before we close that catch our live broadcasts, subscribe and ring the bell on YouTube, and you'll get the notifications of them the moment they happen. And, of course, you'll get notifications when recorded events like this one pop up there as well. And until next time, thank you. Practice grace. When you do, you'll discover the most magical thing. Practicing grace really feels good. Aho. Oh.